Davos Confidential will begin after this short message. Today's episode is brought to you by BP. We see possibilities in solar farms that float. To see how we're driving worldwide growth in solar through our LightSource BP partnership, go to bp.com forward slash possibilities everywhere. Hey everyone, welcome back to the fourth and final edition of our daily Davos Confidential, the pop-up series attached to our regular EU Confidential podcast. After this episode, we're back to our regular weekly format. I'm Ryan Heath, the political editor of Politico Europe, bringing you the truth, the juice and the colour of the World Economic Forum. This circus in Davos is nearly at an end, but what a ride it has been. Where else in the world does royalty have to yell just to get the room to shut up? That was the position Queen Diambi of Congo found herself in last night at a black tie affair I attended called Arabian Nights. We have two interviews in this episode before the return of our regular weekly podcast panelists. First, the Dutch finance minister, Rupke Hustra, and after that, Sarah Kate Ellis, the head of the LGBTQ advocacy organization GLAAD, helping a previously invisible community in Davos find a little bit of love. Almost yeah. got run over by. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we should say uh, we're, we're walking. We're doing a very Davos thing. We're walking down the street. Uh, it's very responsible. So I want to give credit to the minister for not jumping in one of the vans. We've got these idiots who have their private chauffeured cars all around Davos. Ruins the atmosphere. Ruins the environment. So we're the political walking. And, 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 and the weather is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, Absolutely. the sun is shining. It's, it's uh, so in the lead up to Brexit, the Dutch government is going to start to become more visible and critical in everything the EU does. I've got this theory that it's kind of the smallest big member state and the leader of the liberal bloc within the union. And so it's very interesting to hear from Dutch government perspective in Davos. What's bringing you here and what have you been finding so far? Well, let me start with the big hairy problem called Brexit. Frankly speaking, I think that is an absolute tragedy. It's very bad news for the Netherlands. It's very bad news for Europe as a whole. And I'm convinced it will also turn out to be bad news for the United Kingdom. But our approach as a Dutch government has always been that given that this is the choice Great Britain has made, we should work on a Brexit that is as soft as possible, simply because that is in the the interest of everyone involved. But secondly, that we have been preparing for a hard Brexit from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, We share a border border with Britain and we, on many uh, very practical aspects, There's quite a lot of stuff that we have to do. And we're talking Port of Rotterdam, or it's also a bunch of other services-related stuff as well? It's literally thousands of trucks moving up and forth every day. So for businesses, for customs, for the police on the airport, it has all sorts of implications. Well, you have to bear in mind, the British are in our top three of trade partners. So they're incredibly important to us, geopolitically, but also from an economic point of view. And that's why this is such a tragedy, but we are preparing for the situation uh, that they will leave. And what's been on your meeting agenda here in Davos? You have a lot of people, sometimes they're doing speed dating, meetings that go for 10 minutes back to back. Other people focus on getting up on the stage and kind of selling the national brand and maybe in your case, the the national budget. So tell us a bit more. (laughs) Selling the national budget is not part of the things I'm doing here. I think it is typically a mixture, but it is, you're, you're quite right. It is a number of meetings, typically very brief meetings, One of the convenient and practical things here is that you can meet 
many, many people in a very short time frame. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm meeting the, the head of the IMF, the head of the World Bank, a number of international colleagues, European ones, but, but particularly international ones outside of Europe. Now, looking ahead to something like the European elections, I have noticed that the turnout is pretty low in the Netherlands. Is there anything that you're sensing is going to be a big issue that might make people care enough to actually come out and vote in May? Well, clearly, I do hope that people use their vote. It is a very important thing we have to influence policy. I do hope people make use of that. And there is something going on. If you look at Europe, there are opportunities, clearly, but there are also many, many themes to worry about from a, a geopolitical standpoint, from a trust standpoint. There's much, much more we need to do in terms of reciprocity and conditionality. Uh, it's a very worrying theme to me. We're clearly not ready yet for a next financial economic crisis. So there's a lot of work to do. And it is, uh, there is the opportunity to really do, to make use of your, uh, of your vote. So and one go out I, and vote. Thank you. Well, I won't be able to. Uh, <laughs> but for all the Dutch listeners out there, I encourage it. And one thing that I've, I've certainly noticed is that the Netherlands is a bit of a pioneer in talking about the EU in slightly different ways. So this idea of saying that the EU is you, not just these people in Brussels, and that the Dutch people have the ability to say no and put a break on things, and that doesn't make them less European. Well, you're very right that there is oversimplification when the European Union is discussed. And that is one of the reasons I always start to say that the Dutch government, and also me personally, I'm, I'm pro-European, I'm pro the European Union, and I'm a huge fan and in favor of the Euro. Having said that, it is tremendously important to tackle the themes that we have to deal with. And that means that in terms of the how and what, you do have to go for the long-term solution. And if I just look at my own domain as a, as a finance minister, I'm worried by the insufficient preparations countries have taken for the next crisis. I'm worried by the lack of uh, balancing budgets, particularly at this point in time where the economy is still doing, is still doing okay. I'm worried about the lack of reforms that some countries have pushed through. So we're critical on that, but it is from a positive approach. It is from a pro-European starting point, if you will. And are there any balancing tactics that you can tell us about when it comes to things like those budgets? Because I would factually agree with you that structural reform hasn't been pursued as much as it could or should have been in Europe. And then now when you see very difficult political situations emerge, like a very populist government in Italy, which obviously has its own budget problems, you know, what are the tactical considerations when you, you know, theoretically you have to push for some of that stuff, but you don't necessarily want to ignite some massive backlash against the EU or the broader set of government? Yeah, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to say something uh, in general terms. I'm not going to discuss individual countries other than my own. But I think the task, the obligation for politicians is to truly look at the long term and have the guts and the ability to do what is in, in the long-term interest of their countries and in the long-term interest of their citizens, even though that sometimes is difficult in the short run. But hey, that is what they are hired for and that is what they should be doing. Well, you've got a short-term interest now, which is a lunch, so I'm <laughs> going to say goodbye. Thank you very much, Minister. Well, thank you for having me. That was Dutch Finance Minister Wupke Hustra. Next up, GLAD's Sarah Kate Ellis.
it's a very interesting topic in Davos. It's not a set of issues we've seen on the main stage, for example, but we've just been in an absolutely packed lunch. We had CEOs on the panel. We had yourself, CNN's Richard Quest. So how are you feeling about all of that in this broader Davos atmosphere? I'm feeling really positive. You know, we started back last year here at Davos to come make a little noise, make sure that the LGBTQ community was being recognized and acknowledged on the world stage of the World Economic Forum. And we can see movement within a year from, you know, there were two events last year. I think I've counted last, there might be five to seven this year, including one in Congress Hall. And that was a big effort of ours last year, working with other people who have been working on this for years years. But it's really important. The reason this is really important is because Davos is where the deals and the action happens. This is where the future is being discussed and talked and shaped. And so we want to make sure that LGBTQ people are being talked about and are part of that. And I think also we felt, especially the reason why after so many years last year, is that we feel a real lack of human rights leadership in America. And so we decided and we do this at GLAD, we've got to take it on ourselves and we're going to make sure our voices are heard and that's why we're here at Davos and it's been from night to day in a year. Tell us a little bit more about that dynamic. I guess as an outsider it would be easy to assume well you've got a bunch of dodgy governments up on the stage not particularly known for promoting LGBTQ rights so maybe it's easy for the forum just to push those issues aside. Is there anything that coordinated, do you think? Or is it more a case of this being a a forgotten issue and people like yourself just haven't been knocking on the door up until recently? You know, I think it's tricky when you go global, right? Because it's still criminal in many countries, close to 70 at this point. And you have those prime ministers and governments convening here. So it makes it much harder to navigate. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't and that we have to. And, you know, I think with the decriminalization in India this past June, these are significant moves forward. And we'll, you know, hopefully in February see some moves in Kenya in the positive. So I think that us being here helps that. It moves it forward. It moves the needle forward. And so for us as a community, LGBTQ people, it's always been about visibility. And we had low visibility at WEF in the forum, and we are amping that up now. Speaking of visibility, probably the most visible openly gay CEO, Tim Cook, he's turned up in the forum this year in Davos, and he was was seen and photographed having dinner with Bolsonaro, the new Brazilian president. Do you have any feelings about that? Is that an engagement that has to happen? Or do we need to know a bit more about what they were talking about before you have a video? Yeah, I think I need to know more. You know, you have to go to the source to change hearts and minds. And so if there's anyone that can do that, it's Tim Cook. And I hope he used that opportunity to shift Brazil a little bit because we need help there. And this is the place to do it. So I'm hopeful. I don't have a readout on that encounter, but I am optimistic that Tim, knowing how he operates, did use that opportunity. 
One thing I wasn't aware of, but I just heard in the lunch that you were the recipient of a 15 million US dollar donation yes. from the Ariadne Getty Foundation. And that strikes me as a big scaling up in the sort of activism and advocacy that you can do. How big is that compared to the rest of your budget and, and your workload? What, what difference is it going to mean? It's a big difference. What it equates to is it's a million dollar gift a year over 15 years. So what it really does is help us not have to worry about some of the fundraising and really focus on realigning our priorities and our programs. So we were able to, with that financial donation, launch the GLAD Media Institute, which works around the globe helping people speak out from CEOs to activists on the front lines about LGBTQ issues. It builds cultural competencies in places that need it. And it also allows us to get to all of these cultural centers. You know, GLAD is often known for our pop culture because it gets the most attention. But Everybody is a cultural creator now. The top people in every industry are cultural icons now, and we need to work with them, and we work with them to shape culture and the narrative around the world. You've just given me a thought. One of the recent guests on the podcast was the legal counsel at Netflix, mm. which is you know, essentially becoming the first global television network in lots of ways, yeah. in dozens and dozens of countries. Have you done much engagement with them and, and their ability to portray and shape discussions? Uh, in all of those countries? Uh, yes, we work closely with Netflix. We work closely with all of the big agencies out of Hollywood. We advise on some of their shows. We advise on many things. And I think what's really interesting about Netflix is that when they did their global distribution, they went all in on it. And so, so many times LGBTQ content is censored in criminalized countries. And they said that that was a bar for them not moving into those areas. And I think that's been really, really impactful. So slowly but surely, we're getting that number of criminalized countries down. We've been talking a lot in LGBT communities for a while now around intersectionality mm -hmm. and the idea that there are lots of layers that need to be understood if you want to really tackle these problems and be truly inclusive. And in a funny way, I've also been feeling that discussion has been coming up generally in Davos, not specific to these communities, but this idea that if you've got big structural problems in economies, like massive extreme inequality and things like that, how are you going to tackle some of the other issues in society? What are you seeing and sensing around where you fit into broader discussions about social change? the movements that are more populist or radical in nature that are upsetting democracy and, and politics in lots of places. How are you feeling that you're fitting in or finding a voice in, in that environment? Yeah, well, you know, I think that for marginalized communities, historically marginalized communities, it is so important that we are working together at this time because there is this springing up of populism and we have lost ground and our rights and our safety is on the line right now and you know I always say in the LGBTQ community we are as intersectional as you get because we are women we are people of color we are people with disability we are everyone and so for us at GLAD too it's more than LGBTQ it really is all marginalized people and fighting for their rights and so we are very conscious when we do anything and we go to market with anything that it takes into account women, people of color, people with disabilities. We run our research that way too so that we're getting in the information and we hand that research out then to other organizations that then can activate against it. 
Sarah Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Coming up next, we go back to Brussels to join Andrew Gray and the podcast panel. After this message. A message from BP. A race to renewables will not be enough. To deliver lower emissions, the world must make all forms of energy cleaner and better. Read about the many possibilities we see to make this happen at bp.com forward slash possibilities everywhere. So from the snowy slopes of Davos, it's uh, back to the mean streets of Brussels. And here we are with the podcast panel. Hi, Lena Abarus. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Alva Finn. Hi, how are you? Okay, thanks. That sounded like a little bit of a tired end of day. I'm not in Davos and other people are. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. We'll we'll pep things up in a bit. And to mix things up, also Politico's own Carmen Pound. Hi, Carmen. Hello, Andrew. So, uh, lots to talk about this week, actually, quite apart from what's been going on in Davos. And one of those things is a story we published on Politico about Elmar Brock, one of the elder statesman, you might say, of the European Parliament, its longest serving member. One of our reporters obtained documents which showed that he charges people who come to visit him or some of the people who come to visit him at the European Parliament. And uh, those charges are meant to be for their expenses, food, accommodation, that kind of thing. But we found from these documents, he also claims for a lot of those costs from the European Parliament. The Parliament subsidises a certain number of visits for each MEP every year. And we found that led to a surplus. In other words, he was taking in more money than was being spent. I'm uh, choosing my words carefully here. And this surplus, as far as we can see so far, and we've asked uh, Elmar Brock's office, does not seem to have been refunded to the people who were paying these fees. It seems to have stayed in his accounts. And there is an allegation by an unnamed staffer that this money was then used to run Elmar Brock's office, which in turn allowed him to keep more of the money that is given to MEPs for that purpose, the general expenditure allowance. We should say that Elmar Brock has said the allegations are wrong, but he has also now asked a tax advisor to look into this matter. So that's where it stands. Any initial reactions? Lena? I would expect some sort of a press conference from him, a press statement to come Mm. out and uh, his constituencies uh, really owes it. Uh, Mm. They need a clarification on that. The people that they had their trust in him for the past 23 years, somebody with his experience, he needs to do that. And very interesting. On Saturday, he was going to try once again to run. uh, And now he, he, he backed off. So this is a sad exit for such a long-standing politician. Yeah, I mean, I probably wouldn't explain it if I were Elmer Brock either if I wasn't running for election. I mean, it came out at a time when for most European politicians it would have been very annoying if you were rerunning. So that's a bit of a pity, isn't it, for the story. But he is apparently going to take up some key positions, advisory roles. So one of them is in the EPP. So I suppose he should still speak to it if he's going to take on such a leadership role in the party and I think another thing that we want to discuss is you know the parliament subsidizes people to come and visit the European parliament I think that's a good thing actually because you know we're not talking about parliaments in the capital cities of some of the member states we're talking about Brussels which is very far away from many of our Eastern European friends it's just a Ryanair flight away for Irish people but um, yeah it can incur some costs so I think it's a good thing that it subsidises because then you you get to actually come and see Europe 
Mm. Well, that's one of the questions. I was, it's, it's interesting seeing the different reactions. So some people were saying, gosh, what's he doing charging these people? Other people were saying, well, that's not an issue, but it's what happens to the surplus. And then there were other people just saying, what, the European Parliament pays for people to come and visit it? Carmen, what do you think about that? On the latter, I think, uh, indeed, the European Parliament has tried as an institution to reach out to the citizens, not to just be this building in Brussels or in Strasbourg. And that's probably one of the ways to do it. Now, it's hard to say how much it benefits. I think you also need to look at the kind of people that come. Is it people that could afford to do this on their own or not? And how is really benefiting? Because at the end of the day, it is still taxpayers' money. Going back to the issue of MEP Brock, charging people actually for their visit to the parliament. I think it's yet one other issue that shows there is a problem with the parliament and with the way they justify spending taxpayers' money. They already didn't want to justify the way they were spending the general allowance. Mm. And now on top of that, we, we get this information that MEP Brock was charging people to visit the parliament and also to visit him. And then also there was the problem with, and it still is there, that many MEPs have all these other different roles that they're paid for. Mm. And I always give this example because many people accuse me of always showing the bad stuff of Romania. But actually, in Romania, this would not happen. This would be a conflict of interest. So if you're a member of the parliament, you cannot you know, be in the board of a company because mm. that's an inherent yeah. conflict okay. of interest. Well, that was something that Elmar Brock was accused of. Previously, he worked for Bertelsmann for a number of years and, and was taking a salary from that company as well as being an MEP. I don't know, maybe we shouldn't get into this too deeply. I guess that some people will say this is partly a generational thing. There was a time when that was not uncommon and perhaps he is a creature of a previous era. But but it does bring us back to our old friend, the general expenditure allowance, right, which we've talked about. I think we asked if anybody would like to come on the podcast and defend it, you know, how they just get this pile of money that they don't have to account for. Uh, so we're still waiting for that and we're still open to somebody to come along and tell us why that's a A great idea. Let's move on to um, the France and Germany and the big ceremony in Aachen. Merkel and Macron were there and it was the Aachen Treaty that was an attempt, if you like, to update the Treaty of the Elysee, which was a big moment in in post-war Franco-German relations. Uh, But Donald Tusk came along and, you know, decided to give a rather different take. I think we see in the newspaper this week, it felt to me like it was, if this was a renewal of the vows, then suddenly the best man turns up and gives this speech that has all the guests kind of looking at the floor and and feeling awkward. Lena, what did you make of the contrast, particularly between uh, Tusk and Juncker and how they talked about this uh, moment? I don't see the point of saying that he has made a bad speech. I think the times uh, from the Versailles Treaty till nowadays to this treaty, it's totally different. The context, Europe is totally different. So renewing vows at a moment where everyone is doubting the unity of Europe. Two leaders in domestic troubles trying to go out and show that, oh yeah, we're still the Franco-German. I don't blame at all President Tusk for his statement because really Europe worked so hard to put this peace project together and it has to stay and it has to continue to work in unity because it's the only successful project worldwide. And this Um, is the big, I mean, it's the old two-speed Europe question, right? Does everybody go ahead at the same speed or is there kind of inner core that tries to set the pace and does its own thing if others aren't interested in going along at at the same pace? To me, when I saw what Tusk said, I just said, I mean, 
the Franco-German axis is the center of the European Union. I mean, they're the center of the peace project. And I just think that if they want to renew their vows, then that's absolutely fine. You know, so many member states who have joined on later on have benefited from this particular relationship. They've benefited from the economic powerhouses that they are, the international actors, the kind of power that they hold, and they hold Europe together. So, I mean, I understand why Tusk said it, because he's Polish, and this is such Mm. a thing that a Polish council president would say. But to me, it just sounded a little bit outrageous. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to explain maybe for people who who didn't hear, this is the point that he made, is to say that the other countries need reassurance that France and Germany aren't seeing this as a substitute for working with their other European partners. And just to ram home the point, at a big Franco-German gathering, he chose to speak in Polish. So he was talking about people, you know, far to the east of Aachen and even of Berlin. So Carmen, you know, people in Romania, what do you think, if you can generalise in that way, you know, how do they view the Franco-German alliance and how would people feel about, you know, a ceremony like this, a treaty like this? It really depends. There are fears in Romania about this two-speed Europe and that indeed countries from the West that are much more developed economically would go ahead without the East, which now is also sometimes getting bad rep because of all the issues related to the rule of law in Hungary, Poland and even Romania. I read the speech of the Romanian president who was at the signing of the treaty and he seemed to be very positive about it. He seemed to have spoken in German. He's the Romanian president is right. a member of the German minority in Romania. Quite unusual for Romania. We don't really choose too many high level politicians from the minorities. And obviously he was representing the EU presidency there and he was very upbeat about the Franco-German engine kind of you know, renewing their vows. He didn't seem to express any of the worries that Tusk seemed to voice. But at the same time, I think it can be seen as both ways. It can be seen as these two important members that lead the way, kind of trying to give reassurance that the EU is still there and its core countries are still going, while at the same time you also had the problems with Italy accusing France of continuing to colonize Africa. So there mm. was a bit of, mm. of a counter uh, weight there. While at the same time, you know, it can also stoke the fears that France and Germany are going to go at it mm. together and leave the Eastern European laggards that seem to be perceived at times as such uh, mm. behind. Okay, moving on then to our next topic, and that was one I think, Alva, you wanted to mention, which is James Dyson. Dyson, who the brand has become synonymous probably originally for the uh, bagless vacuum cleaners, but also for dryers that appear to be in every bathroom in the Western world these days. And he's announced that his company is going to be headquartered from now on, not in the UK, but in Singapore. And this is particularly controversial because he was a big Brexiteer. And, you know, should we be outraged or not by this? I'm a big fan of Dyson products, actually. And I do think it's sad to see them leaving. The reasoning they're saying, you know, it's Singapore, it's not another EU member state and that our market is there. I mean, it was one of the big success story of a British company that managed to move into the 21st century with innovative technology. And now they're moving away very close to Brexit. It's not a good look. Mm. And he was one who said, yeah, we should leave um, Mm. with no deal. So, you know, this brinksmanship Mm. and then you pull your company out to go further afield. I think 
you know. Yeah, I mean, optically, as they say in the PR business, uh, is probably not not the best. The company, uh, we should say, says this actually only is a kind of, it's almost like a bureaucratic change. They'll be registered in Singapore from now on. A couple of senior executives will move to be based in Singapore, but it doesn't affect much more than that. Lena, how do you see it? And how would you see it perhaps as a, I don't know if you were advising a, a company in this kind of position, what would you say to them? Well, I'm sure this company has a board and has shareholders and they have geopolitical analysis and they receive reports and their move, I'm sure it has been calculated. Such an announcement, it doesn't come like uh, one CEO, he says, okay, I'm moving headquarters. Uh, And the CEO always serves at the pleasure of his board and his shareholders. Uh, It's a very important message as well to the British government to Many businesses are uh, questioning, okay, what's next? Is there going to be a deal? If there's no deal, the coming two years, the three years, if other businesses do the same, I think that would put more pressure on the British government Mm. to find a solution. Definitely in terms of what they have communicated, if I were advising them, uh, definitely I would have said the same. I would just add it as well that it's a business and they have to make money. At the end, it's not about sentiment or about the flag. You need to sell your products and whenever there's a market, they need to sell. Um, Carmen, let's move on to something you wanted to talk about, uh, the prospect that if Britain does not leave the EU on schedule, and sticks around a bit longer. Uh, We could have the strange sight of Britain voting in the European Parliament election, even though it would be assumed, although, you know, even that shouldn't be taken for granted that it would be leaving fairly soon afterwards. What struck you about this? It just raised so many questions. You know, will the British MEPs coming in just be elected to be lame duck from their first day in office. Mm. Obviously, depending on how long Article 50 is extended, if it is extended, you know, how long will they be in there for? And will they matter at all? I suppose in terms of forming groups, they would matter because obviously there might still be a strong core Eurosceptic group coming in. But at the same time, in let's say one or two years time, what do we have to, will we have the same discussions as now as, um, you know, groups falling apart because the Brits are living. It's a bit of a weird Groundhog Day if, you know, if this happens. Adding mess to an already existing mess. <laughs> it couldn't be messier than this mess, honestly. Never say that, uh, can always get messy. <laughs> it's, uh, the treaties, they, they need to be there. If they, there is no Brexit, they, they have to stay two years, one year. My fears is if they will be able to block any trade deals or they will be difficult with certain countries, if uh, they will start making a bit of uh, problems on the foreign policy in the committees, that will be really worrying. Right. I mean, so far they have kind of taken a step back. They've generally sort of said, well, not not the MEPs, but on the council, you feel like Britain doesn't get too involved in a lot of these discussions because they know they're leaving soon. But um, Alva, what do you think would be the reaction if suddenly there were British MEPs, you know, chairing committees and, and forming groups, even though, you know, they were still on the path to leaving? Even just having a, an election campaign would be strange, right? A, a, a British you know, campaign for the European Parliament election? What, on what platform would they stand on? You know, I'll, I'll do something great in the next three months. What would be their thing? Yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to see if we would still get as many Tories. Would Nigel Farage run again? I, I bet you a million euro he I would. He loves that EU money. Uh, rumours, yeah. they say he's preparing himself. Oh, really? Uh, to stand? Well, I think he did say something like yeah. that. If, if, it, if it happens, he'd be, I mean, you know, he's Mr. He's Mr. European Parliament, or he's one of them. That's a funny thing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we'll see a return from that idiot. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would be interested to see if we'd get more Labour now. I mean, the Tories had a kind of weakened position already because they were in the ECR, which isn't a very powerful group. Mm. 
So, yeah, if it continued to have as many numbers and obviously UKIP as well, they already weren't a very powerful block, to mm. be honest. They did get quite sometimes big positions in the committees, but that's unlikely to happen again, I <laughs> obviously. So there are, yeah, there are still, s- still some UK members who run committees. So, for example, Linda McAvan runs the Devi Committee and is still very dedicated which but, committee is that one just for outsiders? Uh, the development committee, so it deals with EU aid considerations. But yeah, that would be unlikely to be meted out in the future if I think they come back. But yeah, it would be very interesting, I think, to just watch that mess happen. Mm. Well, there you go. We talked a little bit about Brexit, even though Ryan is very bored with it. So that is the little advantage or disadvantage, uh, depending on your point of view, if you're a regular listener to the podcast. But no doubt we'll, we'll come back to Brexit again. Lena, Alva, Carmen, thank you all very much. And back to, I think, regular service uh, next week. I think Ryan will be here. Uh, but thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Cheers. That's all we've got time for on this episode. Thanks so much for joining. If you haven't signed up already, you can do that in one click wherever you found the podcast. And if you register at politico.eu forward slash registration by choosing the EU confidential box, we'll send an email alert each week when the podcast is out and invite you to join any podcast related events. Podcasting is a team effort. We couldn't have done it bringing you this from Davos without the efforts of Andrew Gray and Eddie Wax in Brussels and Wei Dong Lin in London. 